and we will hear Acts 19, verses 8 through 20. Acts 19, verses 8 through 20, these are God's words. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know. But who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowering them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. We rejoice to know he adds his blessing to the preaching of it. Please be seated. It's a great help to us when we read our Bibles at home or teach the Bible to our family if you are a husband or a father or teach the Bible to God's people if you happen to be an elder or a minister. If the Lord, the Spirit, the Holy, if the Holy Spirit gives you at the end of the passage a summary statement, something like, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. It's a great help because that tells you Uh, That gives you a key, a a theme by which to look back on the passage and say, well, if that's what the Holy Spirit says he has just demonstrated to us in the passage, then that ought to be what we read and what we see. And when we uh, when we teach and apply and preach to others uh, what we preach. So uh, if you are the sort who has difficulty following uh, sermons, you can uh, look at uh, the last verse, verse 20, which some of you, uh, I trust, have even memorized since it's a memory verse for the week and say, oh, I know what that passage is about. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Uh, and you will be correct. Uh, and yet in describing the word of the Lord growing mightily and prevailing, he gives us first the means by which that word grew mightily in verses 8 through 10. Uh, And then he gives us uh, how he showed its mightiness, how he demonstrated the power uh, that attends his word and that it is he himself who is doing this, not uh, not any mere human strength, but the strength of God himself uh, that is bringing the fruit of the work. Uh, And that he shows us in verses 11 through 20, uh, the way in which the Lord attested that it was he who had done this work. This was the purpose uh, of miracles. Uh, Both miracles in the life of Jesus Christ, you remember in the conversation 
uh, in John 10, uh, when he says uh, that he has his sheep in his hand and no one can snatch them out of his hand and that they're also in his father's hand and no one can snatch them out of his father's hand. And then he explains uh, how both of those statements can be true at once. And it's because he and the father are one. Uh, and the Jews, of course, pick up stones to, to stone him for that blasphemy. Uh, and he identifies himself uh, as uh, God at the end of Psalm 82, uh, which, Lord willing, you will uh, study on Tuesday in preparation to have it as the call to worship uh, next Lord's Day. He is uh, God, the just judge at the end of Psalm 82, uh, not merely those uh, those judges who are called Elohim uh, uh, in using and having authority that is given to them by God. And I uh, commend that to you. Uh, but the Lord Jesus uh, says even the Bible speaks this way about people who aren't God. But here I am doing the works of God. And so if you don't believe me on account of the words that I'm speaking, you should at least believe on account of the miracles that I do to demonstrate who I am. And the Lord Jesus uh, uh, told uh, his disciples that they too uh, would work mighty works. And the Lord attested to the true apostles of Jesus Christ, not that they were God, but that the same message that they had, that Jesus had. Jesus' message is that he was God and he was here to save sinners. Uh, and the message of the apostles was that Jesus is God who came in order to save sinners. And the Lord attested to their message. And uh, you read that in Matthew, uh, sorry, not Matthew, Mark uh, 16. If you have a, a, a copy of the Bible that does not cut that part uh, out of the scripture, uh, Matthew 16, verse 20, they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs, amen. Something that uh, was well enough known that this was how the apostolic message had been attested so that by the time the book of Hebrews is written, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 would say, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts, uh, Sorry, not verses 4 through 5, verses 3 through 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, uh, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Uh, and then suddenly, a passage like Acts 19, verses 8 through 20, and especially verses 11 through 20, uh, is not mysterious and difficult, and we trying to figure out, uh, you know, how to get back to where you could take the uh, the pastor's handkerchief to your neighbor's house, and whoever it touches will get healed. Um, the pastor doesn't have a handkerchief at the moment, uh, but he does like them. Uh, but if it is a well used handkerchief, hopefully he is uh, doing as gentlemen used to uh, carry. You, you carry two, one for yourself, and one in case a lady happens to need one you don't let her uh use yours but we won't uh we wouldn't do the handkerchief thing any more than we would uh try to do the exorcism thing we would recognize that these were what verse 11 calls unusual miracles and they were unusual because they specifically attested to the apostolic message of Jesus as God who had come and died for sinners and rose again from the dead. Uh, and that it is Jesus now who is applying his salvation through the preaching of his gospel. Uh, this, of course, was something that marked the church early on. You remember uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and what came out of that. Uh, and part of what came out of that were the miracles that we, uh, that we saw the apostles doing uh, in chapter 5, uh, verses 12 through 16, somewhere here in the notes. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Uh, and we have just had, as it were, a, uh, a calling back or a harking back reminder of Pentecost uh, when 
the, uh, when the apostle uh, Paul told those 12 that he had met, that John had baptized with the baptism of repentance, but that if they had listened to John, they would have expected not a baptism with water, but a baptism by the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had poured out at Pentecost, and then uh, again who uh, comes upon these men, and they speak with tongues and prophesy, verse 6, and there's 12 of them, verse 7, uh, and that leads us into this passage. So the main theme of the passage is that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Uh, And verses 8 through 10 describe for us the means by which the Lord did this powerful work. What it looks like for the word of the Lord to grow. And then verses 11 through 20, uh, how the Lord attested, how the Lord testified, showed, proved that it was he who had done this work. And so in the first place, the means by which the Lord powerfully worked. Uh, and that is, uh, first, he began the church through the preaching of the gospel uh, in verse 8, in the first half of, of verse 9. He began the church by the preaching of the gospel. Uh, and then second, he established or strengthened the church through the teaching of the word of God, second half of verse 9 and into verse 10. He begins the church by the preaching of the gospel. Uh, he is, uh, Paul has uh, uh, laid hands upon and baptized these 12 men. They have enough for their own synagogue uh, but he doesn't start uh, the the uh, assembly of that church right away. He goes into the existing synagogue in Ephesus uh, and he speaks boldly. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the king uh, concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Uh, in other words, the king has come. Uh, And the king who is the son of David also happens to be the son of God. Uh, That son of man who is the divine figure who the the scriptures taught would come on the clouds and whom Jesus identified himself as the one who would come on the clouds. The king has come and the kingdom has come. Uh, God uh, has brought uh, almighty power for salvation that would grant repentance through Jesus Christ. Uh, And not only has the kingdom come, but now there are subjects of the king in this world, even now. Uh, And those subjects are identified not uh, not now by circumcision as uh, descendants of Abraham or in the covenant with Abraham, but those subjects are uh, identified, the subjects of the kingdom uh, are identified visibly uh, by the sign of baptism uh, that is on uh, the church, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, being placed upon those who are baptized into uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so uh, when he says reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God, uh, of course, Luke uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit carrying Luke along is expecting us to recognize uh, all of the preaching of Christ and the kingdom in Acts up until this point. Uh, even as we have just recently heard that uh, as he declares to them that Jesus is the Christ, those who oppose, how do they oppose? Uh, they don't just uh, oppose the identity of Jesus as a Christ, but they blaspheme Jesus because Jesus is identified as God who came uh, to be the Christ. As, he, uh, as we have just had a reminder that when Jesus comes, he's going to give the repentance that the baptism of John uh, said that we needed. Uh, and so... When it says persuading, re, uh, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God, uh, that's, that's shorthand, but it's shorthand that describes a lot of teaching, doesn't it? A lot of theology, uh, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and the results of it now in the church that Jesus uh, has started. Uh, so he begins the church by this preaching. Uh, he's encouraged that the Lord is starting a church here at Ephesus. Uh, We had several sermons uh, back uh, when we were considering Corinth in chapter 18, seeing how the 
the Lord encouraged his servant and sustained him there. Uh, and again, uh, we see here even in the Holy Spirit uh, falling upon these 12 men and the tongues and the prophecy uh, that in verses six and seven is related to his going into the synagogue. Uh, and he speaks then as someone who trusts that God is saving. And I hope that you hear as someone who trusts that God is saving. Uh, this is what uh, enables a faithful minister to stand uh, in the pulpit, not his faithfulness, but his, uh, his hope, his confidence that God is faithful and that the same God who sent Christ and poured out his spirit then uh, is even now saving by the same spirit and the same means and the same uh, method, working by the same power, uh, so that although we do not have uh, you know, exorcisms and napkin healings uh, as part of our church life, we do have salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ and the demonstration of his power. And so one who speaks that way, speaks the way uh, that the apostle spoke. Uh, we considered the content of his speech, the things uh, of the kingdom of God, but there's much here about the manner of his speech. Uh, first of all, that he spoke boldly. Second of all, that he spoke logically. Third of all, that he spoke convincingly. And fourth of all, although it's first in the, in the order of the text, that he spoke persistently. So he spoke boldly. Wouldn't you speak boldly uh, if you knew that God the Holy Spirit was actually going to use what you were speaking, what you were saying, your preaching, your teaching, to give faith, to give the righteousness of Jesus counted for people, to give the character and life of Jesus worked out in believers, wouldn't you speak freely and boldly? Well, you would, except that you're a sinner. Uh, and the apostle was a sinner too. And the apostle, uh, in a couple of places that we have often referred to, you know, made prayer requests to churches that he wrote to. They pray for me that I will speak boldly. Well, part of the Lord's answer to that prayer for the Apostle Paul was what he had just seen in verses 6 and 7. And part of uh, the Lord's answer to that prayer for us is what we are reading and hearing in Acts 19, verses 8 through 20. The reminder that God is working by his word in this world. And he has made these demonstrations of power that were in the miracles at the time, but as we're going to hear by the time we get to the end of the passage, demonstration of power that is especially seen in the sanctification of those who are saved. And we'll see that in verses 18 and 19. Now this is, uh, of course, something that is missing in many churches, this focus on holiness, this idea that God actually changes the people whom he saves. Uh, and since churches are now full of unsaved people who are not changing, it has become unpopular to preach holiness. When if we really, although we know ourselves to be still very sinful, uh, and yet if God is actually growing us by his grace and giving us repentance, we look at that and not say, look at how better we are than the world, but we look at what God does and say, the living God is actually working in this place. Because the holiness that is coming out of these people that is being demonstrated in their lives is something that can't be done by the will of man or the efforts of man or the cleverness of a ministry. And so now we've given away most of the second point. But if you know that that's what God is doing, back to the boldness, that's where we are. He entered, went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly. He spoke freely, spoke openly. The living God is going to work uh, by this speaking. How often we come uh, haltingly, unbelievingly to our own personal devotions, to our own reading and praying, to our own personal listening, uh, listening to sermons. Uh, and we come and we sit and uh, we start out uh, you know, wanting to pay attention and, uh, and give ourselves uh, intellectually and maybe even give our hearts to what's, uh, what's being preached. Uh, and uh, 
And yet we don't come believing that this is how God gave me faith in Jesus and this is how God will grow me in faith in Jesus. And, and eventually we're not listening with the, the vigor or the diligence and we're just, uh, we start paying attention to the clock and we, uh, we start, uh, just trying to stay awake and, until it ends. Uh, and, uh, maybe for the sake of my little brother or little sister, uh, who might notice uh, how I'm uh, how I'm listening? I will do my best to look like I'm listening really well. Uh, and you know, the only thing I'm praying is, "Oh God, get me through the sermon." When if we believed that the word of the Lord is growing mightily and prevailing in my life, then we come to the sermon, saying, "Oh Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief." It is hard for me to grasp that what is happening now is that words that were written in a different language on scrolls thousands of years ago have been translated into English and are contained in a book and someone explaining and telling me what they mean is being used by God the Holy Spirit to get rid of how I look like my first father Adam and make me more and more to be and to look like Jesus Christ in my life. But that is what is happening in the preaching of the gospel uh, in the church. So he speaks boldly, speaks freely, speaks openly uh, as one who believes what God is doing. Uh, And because this is means, not magic, he also speaks logically. He reasons with them. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. He he anticipates questions and objections. Uh, the, uh, The word is a word from which we get our word dialogue, but it doesn't necessarily mean two means two men speaking. It is often used. Uh, of a speech that is given both in the New Testament and outside of the New Testament. But it's a way of speaking that recognizes that, that people are, who hear you are going to have questions or objections. Uh, and so it seeks to prove its point. Uh, he, he is, uh, he is seeking to make an argument in the way that he preaches. God uses our minds. Preaching isn't just supposed to, uh, to pump us up or make us feel a particular way. Uh, it's, uh, it's supposed to take what the Word of God says and, and explain it uh, in a way that proves from the text that it is saying what you are saying. Uh, and so you reason because you hope to persuade. You spoke not just boldly and logically, but also convincingly. Persuading. Uh, if we know that what the Holy Spirit is doing is uh, is convincing people of a truth about Jesus and that his means for doing that uh, is a way of uh, of speaking and answering objections and uh, and questions, uh, then we pray that that's the uh, that that's the sort of preaching that we will have. Uh, and we read the Bible that way. Not that we read the Bible questioningly, that we question everything it says, uh, that's not Berean. Um, Berean is to see that these things are so, that we read the Bible submissively, that we assume that any questions that we have are answered here. And uh, he spoke not only boldly and logically and convincingly, but also persistently. He did this for three months. He went into the synagogue, he spoke boldly for three months. Ordinarily, we would think that that might be maybe weekly at the synagogue gatherings, except for that when he moves from the synagogue to the the lecture hall of Tyrannus, he reasons daily in verse 9. And so it's quite possible that uh, he's there every day for whoever might might come to the synagogue. Uh, And he... Uh, whether it's weekly or daily or some uh, somewhere in between, he speaks for three months, and the only thing uh, that uh, uh, the only reason he ends up, or the mechanism by which he ends up uh, moving to the hall of Tyrannus, moving to the school of Tyrannus, 
is, verse 9, some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil uh, of the way. Uh, and so he spoke and he, uh, he preached and he reasoned and he stuck with it. You know, this, is, uh, uh, this is an example of what he would later write to Timothy, talking about uh, those who are, uh, who are not immediately convinced. And uh, he says to, to teach them with all patience uh, and instruction. Uh, but there's a point at which, uh, there's a point at which someone uh, is either uh, being brought to faith or they're being hardened. Uh, and you can see uh, over the, the course of time uh, that the more you persist, the more they're hardened and uh, at the point at which they get hardened enough that uh, it threatens to become a conflict uh, in front of the, the gathering that are there, the multitude that are there, uh, they speak, speak evil of the way before the multitude. Uh, that's the point at which he departs. But it wasn't at the first opposition. He persisted for three months. And so there's this, uh, there's this bold, reasoning, convincing, persistent preaching. That's how the church at Ephesus was started. Um, that's, a, that's a good test uh, for missions and mission work and church planting work. Uh, someone uh, someone wants to uh, to be a church planter, someone wants to be a missionary, or perhaps someone who is called a church planter or a missionary comes to your church, and yeah, they, you know, what do they all want when they come to your church? They want support. And there's nothing wrong with that. We want to support the planting of churches and the spread of the gospel. But church planting work is preaching work. And mission work is preaching work. It's not coffee shop work and it's not hospital work and although Christians being Christians is wonderful and God uses that and that's fine but that's not missions and that's not church planting it's not uh, it's not all of the sorts of stuff that we're actually studying in the diaconate class we should all be uh, doing and involved in deeds of mercy to our neighbors but that's not that is not the planting of churches and, uh, and the mission of the gospel. It's the preaching of the king and the preaching of his kingdom. It's not even ask Jesus into your heart that you may be forgiven. It's the king has come and he is building his church and you are either with him or against him. But before he returns and destroys all his enemies, he offers to you to be delivered from your bondage to yourself and your bondage to your sin, and to be brought into his kingdom among those to whom he has granted repentance and faith. It's very, very different. Uh, it's very, very different than uh, much of what is called the preaching of the gospel or the planting of churches or missionary work. Well, that is how the church was begun. How was it established or strengthened? Uh, end of verse 9 and end of verse 10. Reasoning daily in the school or the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So he departs from them. He withdraws the disciples uh, and he focuses on them. There's a transition here uh, from the initial church planting and the, and the mission work to what is the ongoing uh, work of uh, a, you know, we would, we, in our language, uh, uh, a particular church or uh, when a church has, uh, has been begun, uh, and it focuses on the discipling of the sheep. He, uh, he doesn't uh, hear uh, cast uh, pearls before swine or give what is holy to dogs. The ministry of the church is primarily to the disciples, primarily to those who have been gathered into the church. This is one of the reasons why it's, uh, it's such a horrible um, mistake and sin against God. Of course, it's uh, uh, to 
structure worship or to structure preaching or to structure the discipleship ministries of the church in a way that aims at unbelievers. It's good to take the the gospel uh, out, but uh, the church is to focus on the discipling of disciples. Those who aren't disciples can't be disciples. And so he withdraws. Uh, He departed from them and withdrew the disciples. And now with the disciples, he reasons daily in in the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, and this uh, this ongoing ministry of the church, what is it like? Well, it's similar to the ministry by which the church was started. It was the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the preaching and teaching of what the scriptures teach. Uh, he tells us more in chapter 20 so that, that we may know uh, that it was... Uh, it was preaching the whole counsel of God and withholding nothing profitable. In other words, it was obedient to the Great Commission, teaching them to keep all that Jesus had commanded uh, and leaving nothing out, which means that uh, church ministry, uh, and you can add whatever subset or demographic of the church you want, singles ministry, seniors ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, it's not pizza parties and social events. and It is the teaching of the word of Christ to the people of Christ that they will grow in Christ. When this was done quite intensely, uh, some of the early manuscripts include a note that this was from the fifth hour of the day to the tenth hour of the day. That's 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Mexican culture, you probably, um, well, maybe you're not familiar with Mexican culture, and you're still familiar with the idea of a siesta. Uh, many Mediterranean cultures have this, where it's just hot in the middle of the day. So you start an early day, you work for several hours, and then there's the middle of the day when you have time off of work. Uh, and you know, in Mexican culture, it's called siesta because you go home and take a nap. Um, and then, you know, when it starts to cool off in the afternoon, you work for a couple more hours, uh, and then you have uh, supper. And... Well, they had something like that in Ephesus in the middle of the day. And Paul apparently uh, rented out the hall of Tyrannus for uh, as many as five hours every day. This is a pretty intense discipling ministry. The disciples withdrew from the synagogue in order uh, to get this intense preaching and teaching. Uh, in fact, uh, in fact, although we have the three months in the synagogue and uh, the two years in the hall of Tyrannus, uh, apparently these numbers uh, are approximate because what he and what he says in verse thirty-one of chapter twenty talking to the Ephesian elders, is therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn, excuse me, to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, we move in circles in which people like to talk about how they got to be reformed. And we're reformed now, and we have reformed worship, and we have reformed churches. Uh, and usually what we mean by that is that we belong to a stream that came out of a, a movement of, uh, of the Spirit of God, a merciful movement of the Spirit of God in, uh, in uh, Europe in the 16th century. Um, but it's difficult for us to, to make that claim that we're reformed when it doesn't look like Geneva. You know, in Geneva, they had a sermon every day. And every Wednesday was set apart uh, for a day of fasting so that when they came to the, the prayer meeting, they came together fasting and praying to call upon the name uh, of God. The minister might have to preach eight or nine sermons uh, in a week because the greatness of the, the hunger for the word of God 
Now, I hope when we say Reformed, what we really mean is biblical. But if what we really mean is biblical, then we don't say, well, we're not really that Reformed because we don't look like Geneva. Then we say, we're not really that Reformed because we don't look like Ephesus. This was a very, uh, very intense discipling ministry. There was a desire that all of the word of God would be known by all of the people of God so that in all of their life, they would live according to what God says in the Bible. We still, we still live in cold, sleepwalking Christian days. And your minister as much as the rest of you. It was an intense ministry. It was a persistent ministry. He, he did this for three years. And it was an, as, as an example to those who would come after. Paul takes this ministry, and as we've just looked at verse 31 of Acts 20, when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and of course we'll revisit this passage when we get to that passage um, in God's providence to us. When he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he's reminding them that they've seen what the word growing mightily and prevailing looks like. And so he tells them in verse uh, verse 18, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Number 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So now you've got the, the, the gathering of the church for five hours in the middle of the day. Not necessarily that everyone in the church attended those, you know, all five hours. People have errands, uh, and, and things to do too, but it would be expected that if you could, you would. But not only that in the middle of the day, but as he says, night and day in verse 31 and house to house in verse 20, there was home visitation and particularized application and ministry to, to individual households on top of that public ministry. You say, oh, I want a revival. Well, I want a revival too. But what I want is not people having hours of ecstasy and not going to work and not going to, to class and and not having the preaching of the of the kingdom, and not having uh, uh, Bible content and theological content and spiritual application. The Lord wants revival too. What Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty, he wrote to them later in Ephesians chapter four. Jesus, who had ascended on high and led captivity captive, he gave gifts among men. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. That that which the the Lord had done in an initial way with the miracles that we see in this passage through the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, that he continues to do in the ongoing way through the ministry of shepherd teachers. Ephesians 4, verse 11. For the equipping of, of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That there is this theological, Bible teaching ministry that is done intensely and persistently that is the way that Jesus builds his church and equips his church for their ministry in their lives until we all come to the unity of the faith not a contentless unity but an instructed theological unity and of the knowledge of the son of god not now not just knowledge of doctrine but accurate doctrine is important because god the son has actually come And we either know him himself and have unity in him himself, or we each have our own ideas and we're all 
just participating in religion that is the figments of our imagination like all of the other false religions of the world. And so there is a there is a instruction ministry of the church that is the way that it is strengthened and built up in Christ. And we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so what he is describing here uh, in Acts 19, verses 9 through 10, was something that the Ephesian ministers were to continue doing, as he told them in Acts 20, and that was to continue in Ephesus, in Ephesians 4, which, of course, is written down also for our instruction. And literally, the survival of a church, and here we mean especially spiritual survival, the survival of a church depends on it. In Revelation 2, the first letter of the, in the letters to the seven churches, this is Jesus now, these things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands, what does he say? I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Okay, so you still have the orthodoxy. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And so you still have the effort. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. They have orthodoxy and they have effort, but they don't have love. And what is the remedy? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. An Orthodox church that worked hard. And yet Jesus said to them, you have lost your first love. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Well, that's the point at which a minister might be tempted to wax eloquent about what he thinks and feels like love is and what those works are that we should do. Oh, do you remember um, what it felt like when you were first converted? And that's part of what he's saying except for he doesn't leave it up to our memory. He tells us what the works were at first in the planting of the church at Ephesus. It was a daily, instruction-rich, theological-rich, discipling ministry. Yes, it was people who have been delivered from darkness into light. We'll get to that next week when we, uh, when we finish the sermon. A bunch of the people in this church were actually into satanic worship and religion. They bring their magic spell books and it's thousands, tens of thousands of pieces of silver worth. And they now have been delivered from that. And they love to confess what it was that they used to be like because of what it is now that Christ has done in them. And the more they hear from the Word of God uh, about who God is and who we are and what God commands, the more they can identify things from which to repent so that when they do, they may know that it's Jesus who by His Spirit gave them that repentance. 
And so they love to study the Word of God because it tells them that God the Father has saved them by God the Son and is applying that salvation to them by God the Spirit. And here's what that salvation looks like in the life. It looks like giving up magic spells and sorcery and destroying everything that had to do with it. It looks like giving up things that you thought were okay before. But the more you studied and the more you sat under this discipling ministry in which the minister, night and day, with tears warned in public and from house to house, the more you heard and saw those things from the Bible, the more you abandoned what was your former identity, your former way of living, the the things that you enjoyed. Now you live for Christ and you enjoy Christ. And it changes the way you spend your time. Not just the way you spend the time when you're at the preaching, but the way you spend your time when you're implementing by the grace of God in Christ Jesus by His Spirit what you heard in the preaching. That's the love they had at first. When Christ was all. And in order to find out more about what it meant to have Christ as all, they loved to sit under Bible preaching and Bible teaching. You see, the Ephesians, by the time John writes them in Revelation chapter 2, they've got the what to believe figured out. They're orthodox. They reject the theological error. They got the what to do figured out. They're orthodox. They do all the good works. They aren't devoted to receiving the ministry of Christ by the preaching of his word, attended by the power of his spirit, so that they may know his love for them and grow in love for him and express that love in the life and have it be a display that Jesus really is God the Son who came and died and rose again. So we'll have to take the, the use of the miracles and the sanctification in verses 11 to 20 to attest that it was the Lord who had done this. But for our part, in verses 8 through 10, we have what it was that the Lord had done. The Lord used his word to make a people who were devoted to the word out of devotion to him. And so are you devoted to his word? Do you love not just to read and pray uh, in your private worship, your family worship, but especially when you have opportunity the servant whom he has called. He rose again, took his seat on high, led captivity captive. The same one who gave you the Bible through apostles and prophets and evangelists has given you a shepherd teacher. And are you devoted to sitting under and hearing the instruction that Jesus gives you for being conformed to him, for having... His divine salvation displayed in your life. And if you are, to the extent that you are, because all of us say, no, not like I should be. And praise God, he has in himself the like he should be. But if you are, do you rejoice to know that it is God who has done this? That the transformation of your heart and your life is a testimony to the identity of Jesus as much as the healing of those sick people in Ephesus and the exercising, exorcising of those demons. That when you confess that the way you speak about other people has changed or the way you use your money has changed or the way you use your time has changed or what you do on the internet has changed or the kind of entertainment that you enjoy has changed or the way you prioritize the use of your time and your money. 
or the way you keep or the Lord's day has changed, or the way you think and approach worship from the heart has changed, or whatever it is that you say, Jesus has done that. And he's done that by the same power and in the same love as which he came to die and rose again and sits as king in glory. And his kingship is seen as much in the believer's life as it is by the angels and the souls of just made perfect around the throne. Oh, may God grant to us, maybe not to return to the love that we had at first, but to go the first time to the love that the Ephesians had at first. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we don't know, we know hardly anything like this. A church that has enough interest to be instructed every day and to rejoice over uh, continued growth and discovering new parts of what it means to love you. But we pray that by your spirit you would stir up in our hearts a desire for this. We pray that you would give us real revival. That you would, as it were, rend the heavens and come down. And that your, your word and the work of your spirit would pour out like torrential rain. And that where there has been spiritual desert there would be the thriving of life of a sort that is almost foreign to our imaginations because of the comfortable and self-indulgent age in which we have lived and of which we are, each of us, examples to a great extent. How we thank you for Christ and his righteousness. How we thank you that even to this day, this word which your spirit carried Luke along to write about this work that your spirit did in Ephesus, you are making to be preached in this place. Us too, O oh Lord, us too. Are we not your children through faith in Jesus Christ? Are we not adopted by him? Do we not by his same spirit call you our Abba, call you our Father? Is he not unto us still the spirit of holiness by whom we have life and with whom we desire uh, to walk so that rather than the works of the flesh, you would produce in us the fruits of the spirit. And yet, O oh Lord, we have a hard time translating that desire into the sort of ministry or intensity or persistence that we've seen in this passage. Because it too must come by the miracle of the powerful working of your spirit. So we ask, O oh Lord, for the miracle. In Jesus' name, amen.